Hello and welcome to the December 2012 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Moore. This month we are happy to roll out a new website. Please visit www.rcjournal.com to see the new look. You may have also noticed that we are publishing more original research papers each month. Some time ago, we shortened our podcast descriptions of content other than original research. In an attempt to keep these podcasts to about 30 minutes in length, beginning this month, we will only be featuring the first 10 or 12 original research papers. However, we encourage you to review the entire issue online or in print. This month's Editor's Choice paper is by Mansoor and Smaldone. Its title is Blow-By as a Potential Therapy for Uncooperative Children, an In Vitro Study. The aim of this study was to use common, commercially available nebulizer systems to define the interaction of system components on aerosol delivery with and without blow-by. A pediatric model consisting of a ventilated mannequin fitted with a filter and three commercial nebulizer compressor face mask systems were used to nebulize budesonide at zero, two, and four centimeters from the face. Inhaled mass, deposition on face, eyes, and mask were measured using high-performance liquid chromatography and reported as a percent of nebulizer charge. At zero centimeters, inhaled mass for the PARI, Respironics, and Salter systems were 5.3%, 1.1%, and 3.5%, respectively. At four centimeters from the face, inhaled mask decreased to 1.8%, 0.1% and 1.1%. Facial and eye deposition varied significantly. PARI compressor nebulizer flow rates were lower than respironics and salter, resulting in longer run times. The authors conclude that at 4 centimeters, the PARI system delivered more drug than respironics at 0 centimeters, suggesting adequate therapy during blow-by for some systems. Blow-by is a common form of nebulizer therapy where the device is held away from a child's face. This has been dismissed as ineffective because studies have demonstrated incremental aerosol drop-off with increasing distances from the face. The study by Mansur and Smaldone suggests adequate therapy during blow-by for some systems. They suggest that blow-by can be an effective means of drug delivery with the appropriate nebulizer system. In his editorial, Restrepo suggests that, despite the findings of this study, one should use a mask with a tight seal whenever possible, rather than blow by. Our next paper is Different Tracheostomy Tube Diameters Influence Diaphragmatic Effort and Indices of Weanability in Difficult-to-Wean Patients by Valentini and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the effects of different tracheostomy tube sizes on diaphragm effort and weanability indices. Ten tracheostomized and difficult-to-wean patients were randomized to two T-piece trials with tracheostomy tube inner diameters 8 mm and 6.5 mm. Diaphragm pressure time product per minute, compliance and resistance, breathing pattern, tension time index of the diaphragm, and the rate to tidal volume ratio were recorded. In an in vitro model, the flow pressure relationship was measured using the two tracheostomy tubes and two endotracheal tubes of the same diameter. 
The use of the smaller diameter resulted in an increase of pressure time product and resistance. Rate to tidal volume ratio was also significantly higher using the smaller tubes. In vitro measurements confirmed that the resistances were higher with the smaller diameter and similar between the tracheostomy tubes and the endotracheal tubes of the same diameters. The authors conclude that in tracheostomized difficult to wean subjects, the decrease of the tracheostomy tube size was associated with an increased respiratory muscle load that were otherwise normal using a higher diameter. The in vitro study showed that the resistances increased similarly for tracheostomy tube and endotracheal tube, decreasing the diameter, increased the flows. These authors evaluated how different tracheostomy tube diameters influenced diaphragmatic effort and indices of weanability. They found that in tracheostomized difficult to wean subjects, the decrease of the tracheostomy tube size was associated with an increased load that was otherwise normal when using a larger diameter tube. As eloquently addressed by Epstein, this study reminds us that we must consider the physiologic effects of the artificial airway as we attempt to liberate patients from mechanical ventilation. Next we have the paper, Accidental Decannulation Following Placement of a Tracheostomy Tube by White et al. The aim of this study was to analyze features of accidental decannulation following placement of a tracheostomy tube and implement strategies to reduce the problem. An analysis of data collected prospectively for quality management in a long-term acute care hospital was performed. Accidental decannulation occurred at a rate of 4 per 1,000 tracheostomy days over a 7-month period. Factors associated with accidental decannulation included mental status changes, increased secretions, and change of shift. Following the implementation of a series of interventions, the incidence of accidental decannulation over a subsequent seven-month period was significantly reduced to about three per 1,000 tracheostomy days. In addition, the numbers of multiple, unmonitored, unreported, and night shift accidental decannulations were all significantly reduced. The authors conclude that targeted interventions can significantly reduce both the incidence of accidental decannulation following tracheostomy and associated morbidity. Accidental decannulation is a cause of substantial morbidity and mortality in long-term acute care hospitals for patients who require a tracheostomy tube. White et al. described the results of a program to reduce this problem. They found that targeted interventions can significantly reduce both the incidence of accidental decannulation following tracheostomy and associated morbidity. This study provides a good example of applied research in quality improvement as addressed by Dung and Dunn in their editorial. Intra-individual variation of the cuff leak test as a predictor of post-extubation strider is by Gross et al. This was an evaluation of intra-individual difference of the cuff leak test immediately post-intubation and pre-extubation as a predictor of post-extubation strider. 
It was a prospective clinical investigation in the ICU of a non-university hospital. Cuff leak tests were performed immediately after intubation and before extubation to evaluate the differences in cuff leak. The study included 104 mechanically ventilated patients over a 12-month period. The incidence of post-extubation strider was 6.7%. Strider was more common in females of short stature. The sensitivity and specificity of the cuff leak test difference were 86% and 48% respectively. When the authors tested the pre-extubation cuff leak test alone with a threshold of 130 milliliters as a predictor of post-extubation strider, the sensitivity and specificity of the test were 86% and 76% respectively. The authors conclude that the intra-individual difference of cuff leak test immediately post-intubation and pre-extubation does not improve the accuracy of a standard pre-extubation cuff leak test to predict post-extubation strider. Moreover, the standard pre-extubation cuff leak test did not appear to be, in their study, an ideal test to detect post-extubation strider. Intra-individual variation of the cuff leak test as a predictor of post-extubation strider was addressed by Gross et al. They evaluated a difference in cuff leak immediately post-intubation and pre-extubation. The standard pre-extubation cuff leak test was not useful to detect post-extubation strider, and this was not improved by use of the difference in cuff leak. As nicely discussed by Argalius, perhaps it is better to be prepared for bandaging post-extubation strider than to predict its occurrence. Next, we have the paper by Borg et al. Adherence to acceptability and repeatability criteria for spirometry in complex lung function laboratories. This study quantified adherence levels in clinical respiratory laboratories and observed changes in adherence levels as a result of feedback and ongoing training. Two tertiary hospital-based lung function laboratories participated. Each spirometric effort and session was interrogated for adherence to the acceptability and repeatability criteria of international spirometry standards of the time. Feedback of audit results and refresher training were provided at one of the laboratories throughout the study. In addition, a quality rating scale was implemented in 2006. No formal feedback or follow-up training was provided at the other laboratory. The authors reviewed 707 test sessions over the five years. Clinical respiratory laboratories met published spirometry acceptability and repeatability criteria only 60% of the time in the first audit period. This improved with regular review, feedback, and implementation of a rating scale. The authors conclude that auditing of quality, feedback, and implementation of test rating scales need to be incorporated as an integral component of laboratory quality assurance programs to improve adherence to international acceptability and repeatability criteria. The study by Borg and colleagues quantified adherence to acceptability and repeatability criteria for spirometry in complex lung function laboratories. They found that clinical respiratory laboratories met published spirometry acceptability and repeatability criteria only 60% of the time in the first audit period. But most important, they found that this was improved with regular review and feedback.
Volume time curve, an alternative for endotracheal tube cuff management, is by Bolzon et al. The purpose of this prospective study was to evaluate and compare the cuff pressure levels and air volume required to fill the endotracheal tube cuffs using two different techniques, one utilizing the volume time curve and the other using minimal occlusive volume. The study was conducted in the immediate post-operative period after coronary artery bypass grafting. A total of 267 subjects were analyzed. After the surgery, the lungs were ventilated using pressure-controlled continuous mandatory ventilation, and the same ventilatory parameters were adjusted. Upon arrival in the ICU, the cuff was completely deflated and re-inflated, and at this point the volume of air to fill the cuff was adjusted using one of two randomly selected techniques, volume time curve or minimal occlusive volume. The authors measured the volume of air injected into the cuff, the cuff pressure, and the expired tidal volume of the mechanical ventilation after the application of each technique. The volume time curve technique demonstrated a significantly lower cuff pressure and a lower volume of air injected into the cuff compared to the minimal occlusive volume technique. No significant difference was observed in the expired tidal volume between the two techniques. However, when the subjects were submitted to the minimal occlusive volume technique, 17% experienced air leakage as observed by the volume time graph. The authors concluded that the volume time curve technique was associated with a lower cuff pressure and a lower volume of air injected into the cuff when compared to the minimal occlusive volume technique in the immediate postoperative period after coronary artery bypass grafting. The purpose of the study by Boltzen and colleagues was to compare the cuff pressure levels and air volume required to fill the endotracheal tube cuff using two different techniques. One technique used a volume time curve on the ventilator and the other used minimal occlusive volume. The volume time curve technique demonstrated a significantly lower cuff pressure and a lower volume of air injected into the cuff compared to the minimal occlusive volume technique. However, the study did not address the fact that both of these techniques may potentially result in cuff pressures too low to minimize microaspiration. Our next paper is by Guerin et al. and its title is Comparison of Two Correction Methods for Absolute Values of Esophageal Pressure in Subjects with Acute Hypoxemic Respiratory Failure Mechanically Ventilated in the ICU. The goal of this study was to compare two methods for correcting absolute esophageal pressure measurements in terms of resulting transpulmonary pressure and recommended PEEP. Measurements were collected prospectively from 42 subjects with various forms of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, receiving mechanical ventilation in the ICU. Esophageal pressure was measured at PEEP and at relaxation volume of the respiratory system obtained by allowing the subject to exhale to zero PEEP. Two methods for correcting esophageal pressure were compared, the method described by Talmore and a method based on the relaxation volume of the respiratory system. The rationale for the relaxation volume approach was that it was more physiologically based correction factor than an invariant value of 5 centimeters of water applied to all subjects. The authors found that referring absolute esophageal pressure values to the relaxation volume of the respiratory systems rather than 
to an invariant value would be better adapted to patient's physiological background. Setting PEEP according to end expiratory transpulmonary pressure may be beneficial in patients with ARDS. Garan and Richard compared two methods for correcting absolute esophageal pressure values. They found that referring absolute esophageal pressure values to the relaxation volume of the respiratory system rather than to an invariant value of 5 centimeters of water better adapts to the patient's unique physiology. Soluble triggering receptor expressed on myeloid cells 1 as a diagnostic marker of ventilator-associated pneumonia is by Palazzo et al. The objective of this study was to determine the utility of soluble triggering receptor expressed on myeloid cells 1, STREM1, levels in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and exhaled breath condensate samples from patients who underwent bronchoscopy for a clinical suspicion of ventilator-associated pneumonia and to categorize patients as VAP positive or VAP negative when compared to quantitative culture results of bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. This was an observational study conducted on admitted patients in a trauma-surgical, medical cardiac, burn, and neurosurgical ICUs of Harborview Medical Center between March 2009 and May 2010. Bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and exhaled breath condensate samples were obtained from 45 patients with clinically suspected VAP. Bronchoscopy was performed on the day of clinically suspected VAP. VAP was diagnosed by quantitative cultures of bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. The concentrations of STREM1 in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and exhaled breath condensate did not correlate with VAP status. STREM1 levels did not discriminate VAP positive from VAP negative patients when compared to quantitative cultures of bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. The authors conclude that exhaled breath condensate and bronchoalveolar lavage fluid STREM1 levels did not effectively categorize patients as VAP positive or VAP negative when using direct bronchoscopic quantitative culture samples as the comparison standard. These authors evaluated the utility of STREM1 levels in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid and exhaled breath condensate from subjects who underwent bronchoscopy for the clinical evaluation of VAP. Unfortunately, STREM1 levels did not effectively categorize patients as VAP positive or VAP negative when using direct bronchoscopic quantitative culture samples as the comparison standard. Analysis of risk factors for extubation failure in subjects submitted to non-emergency elective intracranial surgery is by Vidoto and colleagues. The aim of this study was to determine clinical and surgical risk factors that may predict extubation failure in patients submitted to non-emergency intracranial surgery. This was a prospective observational cohort study. The study was carried out on 317 subjects submitted to non-emergency intracranial surgery for tumors, aneurysms, and arteriovenous malformation. Preoperative assessment was performed, and subjects were followed up for the determination of extubation failure until either discharge from hospital or death. 8.2% of the 317 subjects experienced extubation failure following surgery. 
The following variables were considered for the multivariate analysis. Level of consciousness at the time of extubation. Duration of mechanical ventilation prior to extubation. Sex and the use of intraoperative mannitol. The multivariate analysis determined that the most important variable for extubation failure was the level of consciousness at the time of extubation, followed by female sex, which also showed to be significant. The authors conclude that the lower level of consciousness in female sex were considered risk factors for extubation failure in subjects submitted to elective intracranial surgery. The aim of this study was to determine clinical and surgical risk factors that may predict extubation failure in patients after non-emergency intracranial surgery. On multivariate analysis, the most important variables for extubation failure were the level of consciousness at the time of extubation and female sex. Next, we have the paper by Manzella et al. Clinical Audit on Diagnostic Accuracy and Management of Respiratory Failure in COPD. The aim of the study was to evaluate the adequacy of diagnosis and management of respiratory failure in COPD. This was a retrospective analysis of the hospital discharge forms of COPD patients hospitalized for respiratory failure between January 2007 and June 2008. Using the clinical audit tool, the primary endpoint was the accuracy of respiratory failure diagnosis. The secondary endpoints were mortality, re-hospitalization rate, length of hospital stay, accuracy of long-term oxygen therapy prescription, and agreement of the treatments with the GOLD 2008 guidelines. The authors studied 130 patients. Arterial blood gas analysis was performed in 91% of patients and in 81% a PaO2 of less than 60 millimeters mercury was found at admission. Of these, 55% had no diagnosis of respiratory failure despite a PaO2 less than 60 millimeters mercury. In 19%, PaO2 was equal than or greater to 60 millimeters of mercury. Of these, 33% received an incorrect respiratory failure diagnosis. In 55% of cases, respiratory failure diagnosis was not mentioned at discharge, despite compatible blood gas results. The highest mortality was found in the medicine departments. The re-hospitalization rate at 90 days was 20%. Adherence of the treatment to gold guidelines during hospitalization was confirmed in 76% of patients. In 41% of cases, long-term oxygen therapy was prescribed at discharge. In 24 out of 27 cases, PaO2 values were less than 55 millimeters mercury. The authors conclude that agreement between diagnosis of respiratory failure and blood gas values was found to be insufficient in about half of the cases. Among secondary endpoints, adherence of the treatment to guidelines and long-term oxygen prescription were, however, found to be good. Menzella et al. evaluated the adequacy of diagnosis and management of respiratory failure in COPD. Agreement between diagnosis of respiratory failure and arterial blood gas values was found to be sufficient in about half of the cases. However, adherence to gold treatment guidelines and long-term oxygen prescription were good. The rehospitalization rate at 90 days was about 20%. 
Let me briefly touch on the remaining original research papers this month. In a model of lavage-induced lung injury, Tang et al. evaluated the effect of alveolar dead space on the accuracy of end-expiratory lung volume measurement by the modified nitrogen washout-wash-in method. They found a systematic underestimation of lung volume measurement at high PEEP levels, likely due to an increased dead space from alveolar overdistension. Rhee and colleagues evaluated a peer-led asthma self-management program with adolescent peer leaders. The peer-led asthma self-management program was successfully implemented and well-received by adolescent learners. Asthma outcomes in peer leaders also appear to have improved as a result of the program. Tavolani et al. evaluated oxidative stress in patients with COPD, smokers, and non-smokers. They found decreased total antioxidant capacity in plasma of subjects with COPD and smokers. However, no relationship was found between lung function and antioxidant status in the subjects with COPD. The effect of cardiopulmonary rehabilitation on heart rate recovery in patients with COPD was evaluated by Giorgio Popolo and colleagues. They found that, in subjects with stable COPD, exercise-based rehabilitation improves heart rate recovery, which indicates a degree of attenuated autonomic dysfunction. Exercise and muscular oxidative capacity were also improved with rehabilitation. Ho and colleagues conducted a five-year study to evaluate the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea hypopnea syndrome with combined uvulopalidopharyngeoplasty and midline glossectomy. At six months, surgery was classified as being curative in 79% of subjects and markedly effective or effective in the remaining subjects. At five years, surgery was classified as being curative in 21% of subjects, markedly effective in 74% of subjects, and not effective in the others. This month's case report addresses the topic of prolonged high-frequency oscillatory ventilation in tubercular multifocal cystic lung disease. Our teaching cases deal with albuterol and lactic acidosis, challenges associated with central venous catheter placement and central venous oxygen saturation monitoring, and sickle cell disease with severe dyspnea from transfusion-related acute lung injury. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.